in expectation of Christ's soon coming and in celebration of the miracle of the Incarnation, I'd like to invite you to stand in honor of our risen Lord Christ. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 from the English Standard Version. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which lightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thanks be to God for the hearing of his word. You may be seated. Amen. Good to see you this morning. And I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I greet you this morning. I want to spend a few moments as we open the Advent season as a church family to talk with you about five reasons to be thankful for the gift of a savior. This is kind of a bridge between a, a spirit of thanksgiving and yet uh, the rejoicing that God has sent a savior. Now, as we journey together for a few minutes, I wanna remind you of an Old Testament passage out of Psalms. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The reason that's a relevant passage for us today is because what we're going to look at for a few minutes in John 1 is more doctrinal than it is uh, other, that, than what you would find in other passages of Scripture at times. And so as we journey through this text, be mindful of that. But as we look at this particular doctrine found in John 1, there is much to be thankful for. There are a thousand reasons to give God thanks for a Savior but we're going to uh, respond to, with thankfulness out of the lens of what's particularly in John 1. So let's dive in together. First of all, five reasons to be thankful for the gift of a Savior. Number one, God in Christ is eternal. God in Christ is eternal. Look with me, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word. Now, let's pause. Many of you know that this reference that John is utilizing is referring specifically to the person of Jesus. So, in the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word, Jesus, was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, let's ask this question. What I just read, is that a myth? That 
<laughs> he was with God. He was God, and he was in the beginning with God. And you may also ask the question, is that really the kind of question our pastor should be asking in church? But the reason we would ask the question is because it's an audacious claim. And if you're a skeptic, it gets worse. If you're a believer, it gets better. Because the verse 3 goes on to say, all things were made through him. Everything was made through Jesus. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. It's an astounding declaration. Now, many of you are familiar with the late C.S. Lewis. And as we've re referenced before, Lewis was an atheist before becoming a Christian as an Oxford professor. Many of you know that a part of Lewis' journey in becoming a Christian as a uh, literary professor, a professor of literature, particularly around mythology and myth, that a part of what drew Lewis to Jesus was the fact that when he began to study the Bible, particularly the New Testament, that it didn't line up with other mythological literature. That uh, the fact that the Bible included uh, persons in all types of brokenness, women who were empowered uh, to make a difference, Lewis began recognizing that this isn't like other mythological literature. And then he had a dear friend, many of you are aware, in J.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings series and other prolific works. And Tolkien was a Christian. And so he began to reason with C.S. Lewis that many of the stories that you see uh, that have been written throughout the ages often are pointing to a deeper underlying eternal truth, and that is the battle between good and evil and good ultimately triumphing. And you may notice whether you're a fan of Marvel or you are a Hallmark Channel person just trying to cover the gamut when I share those two examples, that you notice that the way stories unfold is that they always end up with good, some type of good triumphing over a less than favorable or even evil intent by the virtue of an adversary that's portrayed in the story. Token reasoned with Lewis that the gospel itself is the root system of all these narratives. They're all pointing to a transcendent truth. And when you read the scripture, the gospel story of Jesus is not just some underlying reality. No, the gospel story of Jesus is the underlying reality to which all stories are ultimately pointing because there is a transcendent truth that's been imparted to all of humanity. Now, I share all of this because when we read that in the beginning was the word, truth, the person of Jesus, the word was with God, the word was God, he was in the beginning with God, all things being made through him, that these are the underlying reasons of why John would almost sound philosophical in the opening of John 1, because he's demonstrating that God in Christ is eternal, that he transcends us all. Secondly, he's not only eternal, but God is with us. Now, the name of the series that we're stepping into this morning is Emmanuel. God is with us. But notice verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
We've seen his glory, glory of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Now, for a Christian, this is known, I'm going to use a theological word here, this is known as the incarnation. That is, that God came to us in the person of Jesus. That God, in a sense, took on an earth suit. In fact, Christmas is all about the word incarnation. Uh, Wayne Gruden, a great theologian, said the following around this theme. The incarnation, it is by far the most amazing miracle in the whole Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to human nature forever so that the infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and most profound mystery in all the universe. And so many of you may have a favorite hymn. One of my favorite hymns is a Christmas hymn called Hark the Herald Angels Sing, written by Charles Wesley. And you know the line in that infamous, or excuse me, famous hymn, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Wesley affirming the miracle of the incarnation of God coming to us in flesh. And if you understand the word incarnation, you will understand what Christmas is all about. Even when we recite the Apostles' Creed on Sunday, the word incarnation is not found in the Apostles' Creed, but the doctrine of the incarnation is found within the Creed when we affirm together as an act of worship, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. God is with us. Third, God is life. Now notice verse four. In him, in Jesus, was life. And we need to marry that with what is said in verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what's being declared here is that it's, every human being has the potential of becoming a child of God through relationship with God in the person of Jesus Christ. And in that divine contact, life is awakened. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but in Christ you have been made alive. Now, many of you know that the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, experienced this divine contact at a place called Aldersgate Street when the preface to the book of Romans was being read, and that preface was written by Martin Luther, where the pastor was sharing that salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. And Wesley, uh, the veil came off, and Wesley began to express faith in light of that truth in the person of Jesus. And Wesley then declared in his journal that in that moment, his spirit witnessed with John Wesley's spirit that he was a child of God. He wrote, I felt my heart strangely warm. Now, because of this experience available to all, all persons, Wesley came to believe that Christians are given 
what we would call spiritual senses that connect a human being with divine reality, equivalent to how the physical senses connect us with physical reality. And this was why Wesley would sometimes give the sharpest rebuttals to his critics who would emphasize that somehow Christianity was supposed to be absent of emotion. Wesley reasoned with great passion on the importance of keeping emotions like joy and peace and love central in one's Christian walk, lest we degenerate into being a dry, dead carcass. I have a dear friend named Greg Simon. He pastors a church here in the southeast. His father's name was Jerry Simon. He was also a pastor. And so Greg's dad, Jerry, a number of years ago was counseling a woman who was battling mental illness. And one day in a place where she was in a very deep manic episode, walked into the church building, took a gun, and shot Greg's father, Jerry, multiple times. When the paramedics and ambulance arrived and prepped him and rushed him to the hospital as rapidly as possible, and when he arrived then in the emergency department and specialists are all around him and he's losing blood rapidly, they are doing everything they can to save his life. And when they willed Dr. Simon into surgery, he went into surgery with his hands lifted to the Lord, praising Jesus, adoring the Lord, ascribing glory to God. Dr. Simon died that day on the operating table from the rapid loss of blood. However, the lead surgeon was an atheist who made the following comment. In my entire career, I've never seen anyone die the way this man died. And this has caused me to take a second look at the one that I have rejected. Because Dr. Simon, even in tragedy, even in death, knew life. His affections awakened. His love, his joy in the Lord awakened so much so that he's praising the Lord even in facing death. Touch the heart of others around him. Jonathan Edwards once said this, he that has doctrinal knowledge and speculation only without affection never is engaged in the business of Christian religion. And I would remind you that the scriptures teach God is life and all who have received him as he writes in verses 12 and 13 have become children of God and their affections have been awakened because there, there is life in the Son. God is life. Fourth, God is light. He is light. Look at with, with me, verses four and five. In him, Jesus was life, but that life is also unto something that the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Think about the words of scripture. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. And yet, why would John, in light of proclaiming that Jesus is light, why would he tie together the light that Jesus brings with 
The Word, referring to Jesus as the Word in verses 1 and 2, that the Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word was in the beginning with God. Why Word? Well, thank you for asking a good question. Why did he call Jesus the Word? Well, here's the reason, loved ones. Because truth is a person, and his name is Jesus. Jesus, or John calls Jesus the word because he had come to see the words of Jesus as the truth of God. Or to put it more simply into the words that Jesus used himself in John 14, 6, Jesus said this, I am the truth. In Revelation 19, 13, which interestingly enough was also written by John, John describes the day that the choir sang about this morning. He describes the day that John, or excuse me, Jesus will come again in all his glory. Listen to how John describes Jesus. Revelation 19, 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Jesus is called the word of God even as he returns to earth. And then two verses later, John says this in Revelation 19, 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. And those of you who have studied the scripture, you are aware this is specifically a reference to the word of God. In other words, in the proper context, Revelation describes that Jesus strikes the nations in the power of the word of God that he speaks. We're aware that in Ephesians chapter 6, that the Bible, the scripture, is referred to as the sword of the spirit. And we're aware that in the book of Hebrews, the writer describes the word of God as a sharp two-edged sword that penetrates joint and marrow, gets down inside of us, and does a surgical healing, delivering work for the glory of God. And so, We see all this tied together in scripture, but the power of this word is so united with the person of Jesus himself that John says that he doesn't just have a sword of God's word coming out of his mouth, but he is the word of God. And for this reason, God is light. And then fifth, God is love. When we were in the midst of raising four children when our oldest son was very small and his grandmother, he was four or five years old, his grandmother on my side gave him his first Bible and she underlined all the passages, highlighted the passages that describe the character of God, the nature of God, the holiness of God, the love of God. And she began encouraging along with mom and dad for our oldest son to begin memorizing scripture. Well, one of his first Bible passages was right right out of 1 John. God is love. And I remember one day when Luke, when he was again about four or five years old, had his hand in the cookie jar when he wasn't supposed to. And of course, when I gave him the eye and began walking toward him, he began to back up and He knew he was in trouble, and the beautiful thing he did is he dipped into scripture memorization and looked straight at his father and said, God is love. Where's my Bible? (laughs) But the question we would ask here, John knows the person of Jesus, right? That's why he's glorifying Jesus through this letter. He's not only inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it, but 
There are other motives going on in John. Now, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is primary, but there are other motives. And I want to submit to you this morning that even the motive of John in writing these letters, in writing this gospel, is love for others, love for God and love for others. Why did he write the book of John? Why did he write the words we're studying and talking about this morning? Well, that question's answered at the end of the book of John. He said this in chapter 20, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, not become a dead carcass, but to know new life in the person of Christ. This book is written to help people believe on Christ and have new life. And the motive is love, which sends us into eternity. So when John says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, it is meant that his writing was made available to awaken faith in unbelievers and skeptics, but also to sustain faith in believers in a way that leads to new life, both now and forever and ever. So there was this young man who was trying to win the affections of uh, a young lady that he had developed a crush on. And she wouldn't have anything to do with him. He wouldn't, she wouldn't speak to him. So he began to write her love letters. He wrote her a love letter once a week and she wouldn't pay attention to him. And then he began to write one every day and she still wouldn't pay attention to him. And when she continued to ignore him, that he wrote three love letters a day. All in all, he wrote over 700 love letters to this uh, young woman. And by the way, as he wrote those 700 love letters, she wound up marrying the postman. <laughs> Isn't it true that our efforts sometimes can be a little misdirected? I want to lovingly remind you as we come to the communion table this morning, you don't earn this. You and I don't earn God's favor. We don't earn God's grace. This is not based on your performance. This is based on what God has done in Christ on a cross in taking my sin and your sin and it being nailed there. This is done through the shed blood of Jesus that atones, that expiates, that covers our sin for the glory of God. The word has been made flesh. It's come among us. And to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become children of God. And so as we prepare to come to this holy table, would you enter into this prayer of confession with me? In humility and faith, let us confess our sin. Would you say, say this with me? Lord,
Lord, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Your sins are pardoned. Your forgiveness is sure.